All right. Can I get the house lights? I need to see faces. It's so helpful to me. Thank you. Good. All right. Well, like I said, welcome to y'all. Um, let me just say this. If this is your first time here, just wanted to say welcome. Um, if you have any questions at all about anything going on around here, uh, you know, more than happy to try to figure out how to answer them for you. And even if you're kind of looking for a church to call your family, um, I want to make sure you find the right church for you, for you guys. And so while I think Cornerstone is amazing and I hope you choose to make this your local church, I understand that we're not the end all and there's other great churches in this area that honor and serve Jesus. And so I mainly just want to make sure at the end of the day that if you don't know Jesus, that you understand how you can know Jesus Christ. And if you don't have a local church, how to help you land there. Now, what we've been doing is, is we've been working through this idea of, of how to think rightly living in a world that seems to be so broken. And I would say this, I think across the board, is that almost everyone agrees the last couple years have shown us, if we didn't think it already, that this world is pretty broken. And no matter what we do, let me just say this, this world will never be unbroken until Jesus Christ returns, and in his return, finally the world will be fully righted. But in the meantime, and kind of the, not, not, not just the future, we live in this time period, this already in which we can, though, engage and understand how to think rightly through the world, not because of anything in us. Let's just be, let's be honest about that. We can think rightly through this world because God has given us his Holy Spirit, he's given us his word, and we're going to even talk about it a little bit today. He's also given us his people to be able to do that. Now, the passage of scripture that we've been kind of basing everything out of is Romans 12, 1 and 2, where Paul is, he says in there, you know, I urge you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable unto God. And he says in there, it's, this is your reasonable service of worship. And then he says then, do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, the way this world thinks, but instead, and here's where we want to get to, be renewed in your mind. Now, the thing that we've been trying to do, though, okay, if that's true, which we believe it to be true, then we've been answering the question renewed, to what? And if you remember when we were, we were thinking this through, and oh, I'll come back to that one. Um, when we were thinking this through, and especially when Christian took us there, he said, well, we need to be renewed in which God's, his intent, what, what was it that our minds were supposed to be like? Well, our minds were supposed to be ones that, one, as a limited capacity, we can't know everything all the time in every way, which also means then we're dependent upon God. Unless he reveals truths to us, we're not going to know everything, but we, we can't. That's a Deuteronomy 29, 29. He, the things he's revealed to us, praise God, but there are many things that no matter what, we're not going to know everything. So we're dependent upon him to tell us. We're designed for trusting relationships, that he, he does it out of a relationship that he has with us. And just the last thing is so that we might bear his image well. Now, just to get us kind of keyed in on this, the mind, and I think a lot of times people confuse this, the mind is not the brain. It's, it's not the conscious thoughts. It's not intellect. It's not reason. Instead, what the mind is, is it's an interface. And I know Spencer always makes fun of me on this one. And so... I'm still gonna say interface. It's the way in which we relate to the world. It's a tool that God gives us so that we can rightly know and interact not only with this world, but most importantly, with God. And it is a gift. But the problem with it is, is that this, this mind that we've been given doesn't always operate like it's supposed to. It's malleable. It, it, needs, to be, it needs to be transformed. It needs to be renewed, what Paul talks about. Now, 
Two weeks ago, I talked about the idea that we cannot think rightly apart from the Holy Spirit. We went to 1 Corinthians 2, and we unpacked verses 6 through 16, and we saw in it that the outcome of the Spirit of God coming into our lives, and I hope you caught this, is the miracle that we can have the mind of Christ. Like, I hope all of you left going, I don't know about that. That seems crazy. But truly, the role of the Holy Spirit in us is so that we might think like Christ, react like Christ in the world. We don't do it perfectly, and we are not Christ. But we are designed to model God well. We're designed to bear his image, and one of the ways that God allows us to do that is with a renewed mind. We talked about last week, Christian did, this idea of how the, how the, the role of God's word to, to come in and also begin to, to transform, to renew our mind into the way it's supposed to. And he, he talked about that using the kind of different ways in which he comes out in First and Second Peter. But this week, what I want to talk about is not the spirit of God or the word of God, but the people of God. And let me just be as, as, just as bold as I can God's word is phenomenal, and God's spirit, oh, obviously, he is amazing. But we cannot have renewed minds apart from the people of God. He's designed it that way. We are designed and built to be in relationships, but you know this, and the problem with it is, is that the church is messy. Anybody that's been around the church long enough, you know this. It's this place in which you, you involve yourself in it and you engage within it, but you know not only is the church messy, it's messy because there's just people like us in it. It's, there's all these realities of we, when we interact with one another, engage with one another, you know that each one of you this week came from a week in which you have a litany of evidence that not only are others broken, but you are too. And that was just maybe even your mourning. So how in the world does God take this messy thing called the church, this amazing reality of spirit and 12 people of God, and use it in such a way to come into to this beautiful union with the spirit of God and the word of God to begin to be ones now that we're able to have our minds transformed? And I would even say this, so that we might be the people God intends us to be. See, that's really at the end of it, when we talk about it, what is the intent of God in every one of your lives? And it is to make you into the image bearer that he intended you to be. See, if you don't know Jesus Christ right now, if you're not a follower of Jesus, you will never be able to rightly bear God's image like he calls us to because you don't have the spirit of God. You haven't been transformed because you've never bent the knee to King Jesus and the work in which he accomplished on your behalf to draw you to God. But I would even say this, None of the rest of us can accomplish it either. But there is something so powerful when God's people come together that we can begin to be the ones that God intends us to be. And it is all moving towards that day finally when King Jesus sits realized on his throne, reigning and ruling over all things like he is now, but finally realized by us in which now all of us will, will see the intent for which God created us. But right now, how is it that the people of God do that? Now, what I want to do is I want to take these four things, okay? So just keep these in the back of your mind. This idea of limited, dependent, trusting relationship, and this idea of bearing God's image. And I want to show you, like I think the Spirit of God and the Word of God do, that those four things actually are what the church does to beckon us back into God's intent, 
And so we're gonna talk about the fact that this group of people that all of us are a part of the church, it's a community that limits us. Now in one way we go, oh, I don't wanna be limited. Yes, you do. And we'll talk about why you want to be limited. I want to be limited because you don't want the full effect of Todd to come to bear on you. You need to be thankful that there are people within the church that hold Todd back from doing stupid things. There's this idea that it creates interdependence. Not dependence or independence, but we are created by God to be this beautiful interdependent organism that operates with a life to it. It's a community that grows relational trust It's a community that bears God's image. In other words, to go back to this particular slide, in a cool way, it restores us to what God intends for us to be. So let's take a look at this first one. If you've got your Bibles, what you can do is you can go to Ephesians. We're gonna be kind of all over the book of Ephesians. So go put your finger there. If you don't have a Bible, I'll take you to it. We're gonna talk about how it is that we can become the people that God intends us to be by having this, this mind that he's talking about, but not just a me mind, but a, a shared mind. How can we have a mind amongst God's people? And the first thing that we have to understand is that one of the ways we get that mind is we're a part of a community that is, that's limited. It limits us in some ways. <clears throat> now let me show you what I'm talking about. In chapter four, verse one, Paul says, look, I'm a, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. And he says in there now, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of this, this gospel of this God that has called you. Now to walk in a manner worthy, let me, let me see if I can explain it to you. Does everybody remember those scales that you used to use like in, in chemistry class back in junior high that it would kind of tilt down, right? It would put it on there so you'd put weights on this side and it would tilt it back up. Does everybody remember that? You with me? Okay, some of you are looking at me like you don't remember. You did go to school, right? Okay. Now, what he's talking about is, is in chapters one through three, he laid out these amazing truths of who God is and what he's doing in the world, and it kind of went like this. Now, his point is, is all these amazing truths that have been laid down, I want you to make them real. I want you to see them come to life, and I want you to be a do it as a part of a group of people. So what are those amazing truths? Well, in chapter one, verses three through 14, he lays out this amazing rescue plan of God, whereby which now it is nothing in and of us, but God chose us before the foundations of the world that we might be this people that he would transform into his intent. And it shows every aspect of all of his power and grace and goodness that came to bear to to save us and make us into those people. In chapter, one, in chapter one, verse 15, to the end of the chapter, verse 23 then, he says, look, this stuff is so amazing, I'm gonna have to pray that you get it. It is so powerful, he says, and so real and so awesome what it is that he's not only saved you from, but what he's saved you to be and what you've been saved for, that I'm gonna pray that you get it because it is so powerful and amazing. Because in chapter two, verses one through three, he says, the reason I have to pray for you this is because you understand humanity is as bad off as they can possibly get. They're dead in their trespasses and sin. Their mind no longer operates in such a way in which it is able to rightly know and understand God or rightly know and understand its world. But verse four, but praise be to God. And he just goes off on this whole reality by the time he gets to verse 10 in chapter two, that now we are these people that are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we'd walk in it. In verse 11 of chapter two, he's like, not only that, but there's Jews and Gentiles. You would think they would never get along. 
But he said, what God is doing is, is he's pulling together Jews and Gentiles, of which Gentiles are being brought into this amazing work of what God is doing in this world. And the whole point, he says, is I'm making you into a whole new one-man people. I'm doing something powerful amongst you that I don't care of your racial, I don't care of your gender, I don't care of your socioeconomic condition, I don't care about any of it. I am God, and I'm going to confound the world by grabbing groups of people that you would never think that would fit together, and I'm going to put them together as a proclamation, not only to the world of my greatness, but even he's going to talk about as a way that it's a proclamation, even to the angelic realm of his power. And then Paul says, not only that, chapter three, I was asked to be an apostle to convey this. I was empowered by the Holy Spirit to come amongst you and tell this story. And suddenly, starting in the middle of chapter three, he starts praying again. He goes, this thing is so huge. And remember the passage that we always kind of use, you know, that whenever we kind of wrestle back and forth between this idea of like, what does it mean that God has allowed me to do this? He says, I am praying that you get it so much that you not only believe it in your head, but that you start to believe our God can do exceedingly abundantly beyond all you can even imagine. He said, that's how incredible this is. Now, a lot of times we sit around in Bible studies and we'll sit around in small groups and we'll, oh, that's great stuff. And on one level, it seems so simple, but go try to live that. Holy cow. Now, what the church is about is it slows us down to take those amazing truths of whose God is and begin to bring them into balance so that it's not just something that we cognitively understand, but it's something then we actually start to live out. It's this powerful reality of not just knowing something, but allowing it to come to bear in your life. But now what this plays into, and this is very important, is that he says in there, but in order to do this, verse 17, you can no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their what? Their minds. You can no longer, chapter 12, verse 2 of Romans, you can no longer work according to or be conformed by the, by the, the pattern of this world. You're going to have to think all kinds of differently. Well, what does that mean then? It means that we have a predisposition because of the fall that the moment that the serpent said, you'll be able to not only know good, but you'll be able to even know evil. You'll kind of see that at the, at the end of verse five up there. He said, you need to understand something. For the first time ever, not only will humanity know evil, but let me just, let's be honest about this. The predisposition of every single human being is we want to do evil. And if you don't believe me, go take like a, just a case in point with even an infant. We think infants are so pure and so innocent. My wife and I did foster care. We had 30 of them. That myth got blown out of the water within the fifth one. <laughs> well, what are we talking about? See, remember what I said we need to be limited? I want this church to limit me from evil. I want this church, that you're going to see this all throughout the book of Ephesians, to, to learn how to love one another, to care for one another, to confront one another, to, to come into one another's lives, because while on one end we do know evil and we are prone to evil, we as God's church no longer want to walk as the Gentiles do. We want to be limited in our evil. Does everybody get that? 
Like that is the heart of God, that this limiting factor is not keeping you from something special. That's what the serpent was telling Eve. That somehow, oh, but if you don't know good and evil, your life is just gonna be somehow unsatisfactory. You're gonna be limited in some way. No, we are designed not to know evil. This beautiful church keeps us from things. It keeps us from, and you'll see this like in verse 18, keeps us from being darkened in our understanding. It keeps us from being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that's in us. It, it keeps us from having hardness of heart. It keeps us from becoming callous. It keeps us from giving ourselves up to sensuality. It keeps us from being greedy to practice every kind of impurity. It is a limiting factor. And by the way, amen. And that's why even Paul has to say, that's, that's not how you learn Jesus. And Jesus wasn't about that, assuming he says you've heard about him and we're taught in him and the truth is in Jesus. See, the limiting factor is, is that we need to put off the old self, he says, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through, through deceitful desires. And we need to now, and here's the other one though, be renewed in the spirit, oh, here's our word, of our What? Our minds, the way in which now we know and interact with God and our world, we need to be renewed there to put on, he says, this thing that's called the new self, which we're going to look at here in just a second. But the beauty of it is, is it's created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. In other words, so that you might be able to bear God's image like you were created to be and to do. So, okay, so on one side, the church holds us back from being able to go down this path of evil. It, it protects us from going down that path. But on the other side of it, and here's the next thing, though, is that now we begin to put on the new self. Now, here's what's so cool about the new self. And let me just kind of talk to you just for a second about it. We've, we've talked a little bit about this idea of the head, the heart, the hands. We've, we've called them the three orthos. We call them different things. But the main thing when we talk about the head is, is it's talking about knowledge and belief. It's the new self is meant to have knowledge and belief that is right in the way that it's oriented. Our heart, our delights, our desires are meant to be oriented toward God. Our, our hands, our, our actions and habits are designed to be oriented towards God. The other aspect of what the church does is it not only helps us to move away from this one, but it causes us to move towards the other that we're intended to be. In fact, all of Ephesians is a story about how we turn away from one and move towards the other, which, by the way, is just what the word repentance even means. It means to not go this way, but to go this way. Well, how are we limited on this end? The limit is, is that we have to work it out into every facet of our life. We work it out into our desires and our delights. We work it out into our, our knowledge and beliefs. We work it out into our actions and habits. In other words, it just takes a lot of time. I remember when I first came to know Jesus, I had already read the Bible one time through, and I, I remember finishing the Bible for the first time, and I walked up to the guy discipling me, and I said, hey, you know what? Like, I, yeah, I've read the Bible, and... You know, I'm starting to walk with Jesus, and I just said, you know, this doesn't seem too difficult. <laughs> oh. Anybody that's walked with Jesus long enough knows that, thank God, he moves us forward and transforms us. But we are always battling that reality of wanting to go back to where we've come from. 
And when we talk about this new self, the limiting factor is, is that we stay in a church so that we don't just cognitively understand it. Everyone understands that. My reason that I thought this was so easy because it just cognitively made sense. Oh yeah, no problem. No problem. I'll just look like Jesus. No. The church forces us to begin to work it out. And if you're not a part of Cornerstone, if you are a part of Cornerstone, that's why we even talk through in membership. We've got to work this thing out. We want to bring it to life. We want to now, when you go back to, to Ephesians, the idea is, is we want to see this new mind come to life. My heart is that all of us with one heart would begin to truly see and understand and know and experience God in the world in which we lived in like God's designed it. So the first one off of this is, and you can just keep this in the back of your, man, your mind, one of the things the church does is that it, it limits us. It slows us down, which is very in line with the way the mind is intended to be anyways. So what's the second thing? Well, the second thing that the church does is, is, is it kind of creates within us a, a, a desire or at least moves us towards this idea of creating interdependence. Now, I'm not talking about dependence where I'm completely reliant upon it. Now, let me just say this. Any of us in here, it doesn't matter who we are, we are fully dependent upon God. Every aspect of life, every breath, everything that we know, we are 100% fully dependent upon him, and he is 100% not dependent upon us. We are fully dependent but we are not to be independent and operate in our own way. The church is designed now to be interdependent. We're meant to be these partners. In fact, he'll use words like a body. He'll use words like a family. All these different words are designed to show that we need each other. Now, in needing one another, this is the way that I would put it. We're designed to move at the pace of relationships. We're designed to move in such a way in how we, we, we interact with one another. Now, let me, let, me, let me see if I can explain that to you. When I first got married, I, I remember this thinking, oh, marriage is so easy. Like, why can't people just do it? And then I got married. And I'm like, this is difficult. And suddenly God, by his grace, put a woman in my life in, in the good sense of the word, even though she forgot our anniversary yesterday. Uh, no, I, I, there's a reason behind that, but I'm not going to tell you till next year. But there's this way in which, though, I had a wife that God, in a beautiful way, designed me to move at the pace of my relationship with her. When I got married and became one flesh with her, her strengths and her weaknesses suddenly became my strengths and my weaknesses together. In other words, in a beautiful way, we were put together in that way to, to, to in such a way, work off each other's relationships. Not only that, but before I had kids, anybody else feel this way? Parenting is easy. I mean, I'd go to the store, you know, and a kid was throwing a fit, and I'm like, that ain't gonna happen when I'm a parent. A teenager that goes off the deep end, oh, I won't raise kids like that. But in a very cool way, not only did God interdependently connect me to my wife, but I have the exact kids that I need and they have the exact parents they need. He connected us together and formed a, a relationship that moves at a particular pace because of those relationships. And being inside of a church, that's the same exact thing. It's very similar to the way it happens. We move at these pace of relationships. 
See, the one thing that we have to understand is that God designed us to, to know and to then interact with his world in relationships. When we look at Genesis 2.18, right? When, when Adam is kind of gets, he's getting ready to name all the animals and God says it's not good that a man should be alone. By the way, the only time in all of history that a man was ever alone was in creation at this point. Anytime those things get used inside of weddings, it's kind of a little bit silly because that person's not alone, if you know what I mean. This is the one time humanity was ever alone. It's not good, he says. We're designed to be in relationships, now, off of that, the way that Paul puts it to us is that not only is that these relationships important, but these relationships, what it does, it's the way in which our mind works best. We cannot work apart from relationships in a mind being formed correctly. We need one another. Now, in Ephesians 2, when you look down at verses 14 through 15, these relationships include all kinds of things. Like in this particular case, in the Jew-Gentile, the racial end of it. See, he talks about this idea of these Jews and Gentiles. He himself becomes our peace, who has made us both and has broken down in flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Look at verse 15. By abolishing the law, the commandment expressed in ordinances. But why? Why? So that he might create in himself one new man in the place of two. He said, I, I want these relationships to be so much so that we no longer see ourselves as Jew or Gentile or any of those other things, but you see yourself as one group of people. Look at chapter four, verse six, or verse three. Here's what I want you to be, he says. I want you to be eager to maintain the unity. I want you to intentionally, I want you to work on creating relationships between one another. I want you to make this intentional intertwining of our lives is what he's talking about to maintain the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Why? Because there's one body, one spirit, one hope, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. In other words, I want you to build these relationships where you intentionally intertwine your lives. Now, on one level, anybody that's like me, that's an idealist, I'm like, oh, that sounds so beautiful. Let's intertwine our lives. But you know when you start to intertwine lives, it gets messy. What do I mean by that? Well, within this room, there are some of you that are dependent people. And the way that I always talk about it is, and I've been this way before, and I am this way many times, so don't get offended by what I'm about to say, because it's about all of us. You're parasitic. <laughs> now, in the back of your head, you're like, not me. That probably means it's you. What that means is we have this tendency to suck the life and enjoyment out of others for ourselves, contributing no purpose whatsoever to anybody else. Whenever we start to put a parasitic person, and again, I'm that way, and if you don't think you're that way, you're that way, and even though you think others are that way, you're still that way, there's this way in which now you put these group of people together, and it's just messy, there's also the independent people, which now one is parasitic, and I would just say this, the other is prideful. Anybody else love to be the one that helps others, but when somebody goes, can I help you, what do you say? Oh, I'm, 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 really, I'm really good, I'm really good. How in the world does that create interdependence saying I'm good when the body is designed to share together? 
I think that's what's so appealing about Acts 2 through 4 is that it talks about this idea of this group of people that had everything in common together. They looked at each other's needs interdependently and they helped one another. Now, let's be honest. Like, we're gonna learn in 1 Thessalonians, he says, those who don't work, don't eat. In other words, those parasitic types, they need to be confronted. But so do the prideful ones. We need to help each other understand our God's goal is to cause us now to intertwine our lives together. But what does that have to do with the mind? Why is it that God's trying to create these interdependent people? Well, in the book of Philippians, and I won't go there because Christian's gonna go there next week, so I'll just have to say you're gonna have to wait for him to kind of land that as the last thing upon what he's gonna talk about next week, is that interdependent people become one of mind. All throughout Philippians, he says, one mind, one mind, one mind, one mind. The more that we have to go through the strain and the struggle of those relationships, and I, I look out over this room and I see so many of you that have been friends of mine for a long time, and I've had to confront you of your evil. No, actually, opposite, you've had to confront me and we've worked together, but you know in that tension and struggle and difficulty, seeking truly to get to that point where we can live interdependently and make much of Jesus, you build a bond that is powerful. You learn to actually think together. You learn to have a mind together. You learn how to be these people that now we begin to perceive and see and understand and interact with the world in a similar way. People ask me, like, why did the church go all over the place during the, the, the pandemic? Why was it that one group's doing this and one group's doing that? It's because we weren't of one mind, and the only way that you ever develop a one-mindedness is through the strain and the struggle of interdependence. In marriage, in family, in churches, in all those places we're designed to have relationships, God says, I want you to press through those things. I want you to interact. I want you to dive into the messiness because I want you to rightly know and understand the world, and the only way in which you can do that is through the just messiness of being together. Which leads me to my next one. It's, it's not only that we're now this community that grows in interdependence, but we're a community that grows in relational trust. It's working through the messiness. It only builds a one mind, but have you ever found when you work through the messiness with people, you start to trust like there's something so cool that after you've worked through something, and you'll see this whether it's on an adult level or even down on a kid level. Like I'll never forget this. The first time I saw it with one of my children, I had to bring discipline to bear on this child. And after I got done disciplining, we kind of looked at each other, that child ran into my arms. Why? I think there's something in us that when we work through something difficult and all the chemicals in the mind and all the realities of how God has made us, after we've worked through difficulty, we want union. We want to be together. Now, I'm not talking the messiness where we're both arrogant and selfish. I'm talking that messiness that, that acknowledges the humility that then begins to draw us together. It's how God intended his body to be. That's why Paul in, in Ephesians 4, 15 through 16, he says, look, rather, speaking the truth in love, I want you to grow up in every way into him. I don't want you to grow up into something else, but I want you to grow up into him who's the head into Christ from the whole body that's joined and held together by every joint with which it's equipped. When each part is working properly, here's the key makes the body grow up so that it builds itself in love. Oftentimes people will tell me that, you know, I just, I don't want to be involved in a church that has tension. 
Can I just say this? There is unhealthy tension, okay? I'm not trying to say that. Arrogance creates unhealthy tension. Pride creates unhealthy tension. But if we're gonna be followers of Jesus Christ, we have to live in tension. We do need to confront one another. We need to be there together to work through these difficult things. That's why Paul talks about, like, don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery, he says to this group of people, but be filled with the Spirit. And what comes from it, verse 21, is we begin to submit to one another out of reverence of Christ. In fact, submission is, I think, one of the most trusting things we can do on this planet is to entrust ourselves to another person in that kind of a way. Submission says, I'm going to entrust myself to you. And I would say this, we don't trust God more than when we entrust ourselves to another person. The moment that me and now, when you look at it, like in Ephesians 5, 22 through 25, as a husband, I choose to love my wife like Christ loves the church, even if she doesn't reciprocate in return, I am trusting God in that moment that he's got me, even if she doesn't. In that moment, she submits to me, probably, and I'll tell you what, she must be much more scared to, to submit to me. Even if I don't love her in return, I am trusting God that at the end of the day, I will trust you that you will care for me as my God. Parents with, with kids, even though you call them to obey, you know this, kids don't always obey. But kids know this, parents don't always do it without coming at them sometimes in anger. But even inside the church, there's something so powerful that even though I as an elder, you're called to submit to me in a powerful way, I submit to you. And I think the more the church learns to say, I'm gonna put myself out there and trust you no matter what, there is something that powerful happens to our mindset together. We begin to then, as we open ourselves up to trust one another, and as we trust one another, we begin to then perceive and understand and interact with the world in the way that we're supposed to. I think that's what he's talking about, this new mind that that he talks about in chapter four that helps us to think through and operate in this world. I remember a few years ago, the fear of this on one level, when my wife and I started taking in foster kids. The first kid came along, and I I think, I feel bad. I think his name was David. I forgot some of the kids' names because I'm getting old. But with each kid, it began to hurt like crazy to give them back to mom and dad. And I began to build a wall kind of up inside of my heart where it was like, no, I'm gonna, I'm gonna protect myself in some way so that I don't really love this kid. I'll just kind of love this kid. And if I just kind of love that kid, then when I give him back to mom and dad, it won't hurt as much. I remember telling that to my wife and I remember her looking at me and she goes, Todd, but if you love them in that way, then it doesn't feel like a mom or a dad is supposed to love them. She goes, can't you trust God that if you love that kid with everything that you are, like moms and dads are supposed to, that we have a God in heaven that you can trust, that in the midst of your brokenheartedness, he will walk you through it. And I think sometimes inside of the church, we've been hurt as we begin to submit ourselves to one another, as we begin to lay our heart out there for other people. And so because we don't want to get ourselves hurt, we hold it back in a way so that we never have to interact. But God says to us, and this is what I think he's talking about with this love that he's expressing in Ephesians, put it out there. Build that tightness. Build that trust relationship. Now, there's definitely implications within it. 
One is there are parasitic personalities. There are people that use and manipulate and and abuse and deceive. There's idealists like me that take you along for a ride because we're, we're not thinking about realities. But those people need to be confronted. But even in the confrontation of people, even as we deal with people that that operate wrongly, this is how powerful God is, is he draws us together. What does he draw us together in? This brings us to our next thing, a group of people that bear God's image. Ephesians 2, 21 through 22 talks about this idea that now we become this structure in Christ Jesus. We're joined together in this holy temple. We, we become this group of people that is being built together, this dwelling place of God by the Spirit. In other words, as we become people that now learned that the body of Christ is there to temper us, to slow us down as it's been there to build these, these relationships and we trust one another, as we then work it towards that, all of this comes together in such a way that what Paul says, look, when that all starts to happen, the world starts to see something powerful. See, the church has to operate differently. We're designed to be this group of people, not only that, but to be renewed in the spirit of our minds, to put on the new self created in the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. We're designed to look like God. We're designed to be imitators of God as beloved children. We're to walk in love as Christ loved and gave himself for for us. Talk about trust, putting yourselves in the hand of the Father and then putting yourselves in the hands of sinful man to be carried out. But it's a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. But here's the other one I wanna finish with. I think one of the most powerful realities is is that now the church becomes this group of people that demonstrate the manifold wisdom of God, not only to this world, but it says in there to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. What do I mean by that? During the last two, two years, the church has been looking for a fight. I've been watching us. We wanna fight somebody. We wanna fight the government. We wanna fight our neighbor. We wanna fight on social media. We just wanna fight. We're hankering for a fight. But the weird part about it is, is those fights generally have to do with, I've got power, and I want to exhibit my power against these group of people. But yet Paul, I think what he's saying is, is as the church just looks like the church, we fight the good fight. As the church looks like the church, think about this. As we begin to realize that we were limited, that we begin to operate from a place of dependence upon God and interdependence with one another, as we begin to be a group of people who truly now live in a trusting relationship, Paul's whole point is, is that's the way we fight against what's going on in the world because we're fighting against the curse. We don't have to fight against people. He says, your, your battle later on in chapter six is not against flesh and blood. You don't have to scream and yell at Joe Biden. You don't have to scream and yell at Donald Trump. You don't have to scream and yell here. You don't have to scream and yell anywhere. You don't have to scream in a box with a fox with some rocks and some socks. You don't have to yell. The loudest proclamation of the church against Satan and his minions, the demonic forces, against the powers that be are out there, our greatest absolute way in which we defy the world is when we are the church. And when we act like the church, not in power, but in humility, when we act like the church in love, not in arrogance, when we act like the church as it's supposed to be, 
We tell the demonic realm, I know you intended to cause humanity to fall and to not be able to be the image bearers that we were designed to be to make much of God. We tell the world out there that even we're in submission to even government. You might, like Jesus told Pilate and Herod, you might think you're in control, but our God is in absolute control. I'm submitting to you, not because you're anything. I'm submitting to you because our God reigns and rules over all things. And I'm not gonna hate you. I'm not gonna scream at you. I'm going to instead be the church against the defiance of the world and its system. If you want to protest, which I hope you all do, protest by being God's church. That's the mind that he's leading us towards. That is the way that we rebuke dark forces. And that is the way I would just say to this, how it is that we think rightly in a broken world. Now, one last thing. Let me give you some things. If you're somebody that's kind of wondering, how can I understand the Spirit of God? Because I didn't ever put anything up there. I just want to give you three books that were important in kind of my framing and shaping of my understanding of the Spirit. Uh, the first one is R.C. Sproul. He wrote a book called The Mystery of the Holy Spirit. If you ever get a chance to read it, it's a great book. He does a phenomenal job putting it together. But it, the reason we're trying to understand the Holy Spirit is, again, we're wanting to be the people God intends us to be. And we cannot be the people God intends us to be apart from the work of the Holy Spirit. So we need to understand him. Another book that I, I was really, I, I was thankful for is uh, Sinclair Ferguson's book, The Holy Spirit, if you've never read it. One of my favorites of all time on the Holy Spirit. I highly encourage it. And then the other one is some of the sermons of uh, Charles Spurgeon. If you don't know who Charles Spurgeon is, he's an old dead guy from the 19th century, but he still speaks to today. But I would say this. If you want to understand the Holy Spirit in the coming year, go learn. Go learn who this one is that allows us to think rightly in a broken world. You cannot think rightly in a broken world apart from the Holy Spirit. So we better know who he is. And all God's people said? Amen. Amen. The other one that Christian put out there, The Wisdom Pyramid, I uh, just finished reading that one. Great book. But can I just say this? It's a good book. But if you really want to know the Word of God, read the Word of God. Everybody get me on that? And I would even say this, set in motion this year that you're going to read God's word. Set in motion this year that I don't care if you're going to read it in one year or two years. I remember when I first came to know Jesus, I didn't realize you're supposed to take your time moving through the Bible. So I kind of, I, I'm a fast reader, so I read it in like three or four months, and I came back to the guy, and I'm like, hey, you know, I finished the whole Bible. That's what I was telling you about the story. You know, I think I can live it, which was, again, crazy. But the perplexing thing to me was is to find out I read the entire Bible as a brand new believer, but most people had never even read it once. No way. Like, get out there in God's word. If you need a chronological Bible, go get a chronological Bible. If you need to read the message, the, tra uh, the living translation, the NIV, the NASB, the, I don't even care your translation. Don't do the, like any of them from Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormons. Stick to some of the texts in which we're kind of talking about that we have, but... Read God's word, be out in it. Know the story that we're a part of. Know the God who supersedes and reigns and rules over all things. And just the last thing is this. In the next year, do not live alone. Don't be isolated. I don't care how you need to do it. If you're someone that needs to go on Zoom, go on Zoom, but get around God's people. And then like Hebrews 10 talks about, Stir one another towards love and good deeds. As one of the shepherds here, I totally give you permission and I encourage you and God's word actually commands you 
Do not forsake the assembling of yourselves, and when you get together, stir one another. Be the church. And all God's people said, amen. amen. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for today. Oh. May Cornerstone be a church, Father, that we truly live understanding that we need limitation. We need to be limited from evil. Help us, I beg you, gosh, help us to get that. Help us also, to, Father, to be a church that understands we're limited and it takes us time to understand things. Father, help us to be a church that believes that we cannot be your people apart from living interdependently. And by living interdependently, help us believe that is being dependent upon you. Father, please, would you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would you enable us to be a group of people that build trusting relationships, not, not the fake kind that just kind of happens, but the, the real kind that comes through conflict and in difficulty, and even the working through insecurities, working through forgiveness and repentance, all those things, Father, do that within our midst. And then, Father, would you make Cornerstone the most protesting church that you possibly can, not because we're out carrying signs, not because we're screaming and yelling at the government authorities, not because we're telling everybody what to do, but Father, make us the greatest protest that's ever been seen in Simi Valley because we just lived as being the church. Stir us, Father. Do a powerful work. In your name we pray, amen.